0: Good morning. I'm Pastor Sam. Glad that you're here as we launch into this series uh, in Jane's, one of my favorite books. I know uh, many of you love it as well. Uh, but uh, I have several things to talk about before we get into that. Uh, uh, first of all, a question. Honesty. Raise your hands. Be honest this morning. How many of you have complained about the cold today? Okay. I'm going to be talking to you people this morning. So... Uh, Glad that you're here. Um, Today is uh, Sanctity of Human Life uh, Sunday, and we have been working for over 20 years with the Women's Center of Northwest Indiana. We have uh, an office here in town with them, and every year they give us these baby bottles to fill up with our loose change, or you can write a check, or put you can put any kind of money in here, actually, and bring this back in a week or two uh, to help support uh, the Women's Center in the the fine work uh, that they do. Also, we are just, uh, we are less than a month out uh, to our Night to Shine event. And uh, on the missions table, you can pick this up at the missions table. Also on the mission table is this prayer guide for Night to Shine. Our goal was 75 participants. Uh, We've already exceeded 80, and so uh, we're very excited about the community response as well uh, to this event. So uh, we're asking you to pray for this event by picking up this prayer guide at the missions table. And then in 12 days, uh, I will be leaving for Tanzania to, to climb Mount Kilimanjaro uh, and, and to work with uh, or to encourage people uh, to sponsor children through World Vision. And at, at the mission table, you can pick up this prayer card and you can be praying for me during those 14 days that I'll be gone. You can put the date on there that reminds you of what uh, day that you're going to be praying for me. And then also... On February the 7th, which is the night that you all will be celebrating Night to Shine, I will be standing at the top of Mount Kilimanjaro. And um, here's here's why I'm doing this. Uh, we are last fall we we sponsored over 120 children in a town in an area called Kalapata, Kenya. And um, you can go to this website. We'll put this back up on, on the screen. Worldvision.org/grace. I know it's there. Do we have it? These packets are at the mission table, and every packet uh, that is there is a child from Kalapata, Kenya. And uh, you, can, you can go to the website worldvision.org. Grace. And friends, you need to know that Grace Fellowship is the first, this is a new strategy for World Vision, but we are the first church uh, to make it possible for you uh, to go to the website, and every child posted on that website is from Kalapata, uh, Kenya. And why this is important is because some of you have already asked, you know, is it possible for me to ever go and meet my sponsored child? And uh, yes, and so we can do this as a group, Uh, and so because we're all sponsoring from the same same area, And uh, one of these days, we're going to go back to Kalapata and we're going to see the, the well that you dug and the schools and the healthcare clinics that you established and the churches and the pastors that you've supported uh, in this area. And again, we can do this as a group because we're all going back to the same place. And so I'm very excited about that. I'm climbing Mount Kilimanjaro to encourage you to join me not only uh, in praying for World Vision, but being a part of the, wor- uh, the work that World Vision is doing. And so uh, on February the 7th is when I'm going to reach uh, the tallest peak in Africa, and what I want to do is take you with me. Okay, so um, it's not going to be in the comments area. It's going to be in the conference area behind the reception desk after the service this morning. If you want to be a part of this, uh, I want you to put your name... On this flag, and uh, we will post this later at some time. I don't know when because I'm not going to have a phone for like seven days, which will be awesome. But um, anyway, at some point when I get back to civilization, we will we will post this with your name on it, uh, because together, Grace Fellowship, you are doing what Jesus has called us to do, and that is to love the least of these, uh, by first of all providing clean water that makes it possible. Uh, for them to support themselves, it makes it possible for them to support schools and health clinics, and most importantly, uh, churches. You know, pastors uh, can't support themselves in these regions, and so uh, uh, by increasing the economy, you increase everything in their lives and help them to thrive. And so that's why I'm doing this, that's why you're doing it, and so. Um, Go, go to the missions table. I know this is a lot in, in, in uh, one announcement. Uh, you've got baby bottles to pick up. You've got prayer guides to pick up. You've got childs, uh, children to sponsor. You've got pastors to pray for. And you've got flags to sign. You can all do this. I know that. So um, it's going to be in the conference area um, But before I get into the message, we need to pray, especially for sanctity of life and for all the other things that are going on in the life of this church, a lot, a lot of good things. And uh, let's pray for God to continue to work through these opportunities. Father, we are so overwhelmed and humbled by the way that you have uh, used this church and the way that you are using this church, all of us, uh, to love the least of these. Uh, Father, the most vulnerable place in our culture uh, today is in the womb and so Father, we pray uh, for those men and women who are in a crisis of life and making choices. and uh, we pray that those choices would be life-giving. We pray for organizations like the Women's uh, Center of Northwest Indiana who work uh, with uh, families and individuals uh, who are facing these choices. Father, give them the compassion, the understanding, the boldness uh, to serve these people well. Father, we thank you for all those who are participating in Night to Shine, again, serving the least of these and loving them with the love of Jesus. And Father, for uh, those who don't have the basic necessities of life, uh, food, clothing, shelter, clean water, education, a relationship with you. Father, we are so uh, pleased to be able to participate in the work of Ro- World Vision. Continue uh, to resource us so that we can love the world around us. To that end, we pray, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, you have a Bible or you have a version app on your phone or you have an outline. Let's all pull that out and let's talk about uh, the letter uh, from James. James. Um, This is, most scholars believe that this is the very first uh, piece of writing. Uh, that was composed, that was included in the New Testament. This is the first book uh, included in the New Testament that was ever written. Before the Gospels were penned, uh, where we learned about or read about the life and teachings of Jesus, James was writing to believers about the life of Jesus and how to live out that life uh, in our daily lives. James is often called the Proverbs of the New Testament because of the practical wisdom that he gives in this letter. He is the sermon on the Mount uh, in the the New Testament letters, because he takes the teachings of Jesus and makes application to it. We know him as James. That's the English uh, name to this letter. But in the Greek, his name would be Jacobos. Jacobos, say Jacobos. Jacobos. James Stacy, our small group director. Uh, Stacy was due yesterday continue to pray for her because uh, he has not yet come. And we don't know what his name is because they won't tell us, but I think it should be Yacobas Jr. (laughs) If they want to be biblical, you know, just just making... So anyway, the letter to James, very practical book, very wise book. Uh, If I could summarize the book uh, in this statement, it would be this, life is hard, God is good. Life is hard, God is good. Say that. Life is hard, God is good. Many of us would, would, would readily agree with the first part of that statement, but many of us also struggle with the second part of that statement. You don't have to convince me that life is hard. What I struggle with is in the difficulty of life, the hardness of life, is God really good? And this is what James talks about in the very first part of his letter. Let's, let's look at this. Chapter 1, verse 1. James a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Notice the introduction, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. James is saying, I am a servant of Jesus. Now, the thing is, James could have introduced himself differently. He could have been the biggest name dropper in the church because James was, he could have said, my name is James, the half-brother of Jesus. You know me, I'm the half-brother of Jesus. No, seriously, me and Jesus, we share the same mom. Joseph, James, Jesus, you get that? You know, we're all in the same family. But he doesn't introduce himself this way. We know uh, from the Gospels that Jesus, after Jesus was born, Joseph and Mary consummated their marriage and had six other siblings. So Jesus was the oldest of seven uh, half-siblings. Question, how many of you grew up with siblings? Okay, a lot of us did. And this is typical birth order stuff. If you were the younger sibling, um, there was probably a time in your life where you thought the older sibling was perfect. There was probably a time when that older sibling tried to convince you that he was perfect or that she was perfect. Uh, But here's the thing with James. What was it like to actually grow up with someone who never, ever did anything wrong? Uh, The Gospels don't tell us what James thought about growing up with Jesus, but we do know when Jesus launched his ministry what James thought about it. James thought Jesus was nuts. Literally, Mark chapter three verse twenty-one: When his family heard this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, "He is out." He is out of his brothers. Thought Jesus was out of his mind. This business about a new kingdom. Stop it you're embarrassing us. Maybe that's why 1 Corinthians chapter 15, when Paul was giving evidence of the resurrection, arguing for the resurrection of Jesus, he made a point to mention that when Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared intentionally and personally face-to-face with James, his half-brother. What would your brother have to do to convince you that he was God? He'd have to rise from the dead. This is what Jesus did, and James saw it, and it changed his life forever. And that's why James never introduced himself as a half-brother of Jesus. He introduced himself as a servant of Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he writes to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. James became the very first pastor. He was the very first pastor in the first century when the church was established in Jerusalem. And so the dispersion, when when persecution hit the church in Jerusalem and all the believers were scattered out into Judea and Samaria and the other ends of the world, was a a fulfillment of prophecy, James writes to his church, the people that he pastored and encourage them to live out the life of Jesus, regardless of the struggles they face, regardless of the problems you you have to go through. Life is hard, but God is good. Anybody got problems here? Better question, anybody not have problems here? Okay, this is life, right? There are two kinds of people in the world, people with problems and people with denial. Life is hard, but God is good. To live is the struggle, and so it doesn't matter who you are or where you're from, what you have or don't have how good you are or not no one has a pass on problems jesus said no servant is above his master the life of jesus was a life of suffering why would we expect less and in addition in not in spite of but because of our suffering god is able to display his goodness in his life. In this world, you will have trouble, Jesus said. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So, in your outline, I've given you five words as we're going to work through this passage, and then we'll get to the application points. But G- uh, James begins his letter to all the believers over the world. And here's the first thing that he talks about joy, joy. He says in verse 2, Counted all joy my brothers when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, in other words mature, lacking in nothing. He starts talking about problems. And he tells us a couple of things about problems. One, they are certain. He doesn't say if, he says when problems will come. They are unpredictable. Some translations use the word whenever, and that's when they come. They just come whenever. Uh, They come, the the car doesn't make an appointment with you when it breaks down. It just breaks down. The heart attack was not on the calendar. It just shows up. We call it out of nowhere, right? Uh, problems, uh, Problems are certain, they're unpredictable, and they are diverse. You and I don't have the same problems. But we have problems. Some of our problems we create on our own. For some of you, your biggest problem is sitting in your own seat. That's where your problem is. For some of you, your biggest problem is sitting next to you. Sorry. For some of you, for some of you, your problems just, they just come out of the blue. Where did they come from? Well, friends, they came from a broken world filled with problems. And so they come from all over the place. They come unannounced. They come in all different shapes and sizes. What unites us, friends, is not our particular problems. It's just the fact that we have problems. And the problem with problems is that we don't always handle our problems in the right way. And so we make more and bigger problems out of our problems. And so James talks to us about our problems. Verse 5, he goes on. If any of you lacks wisdom about your problems, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, believing with no doubt, no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. He is unstable for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double minded man, unstable in all his ways. Here's the second word to write down wisdom. What is wisdom? Uh, wisdom is not intelligence smart people are not always wise people Uh, have you ever said you should know better anybody ever say that you should know better. sometimes we say that to ourselves you should know better the fact is we most of the time we do know better we just don't choose better we just don't do better and so the difference between intelligence and wisdom is that wisdom knows how to use that intelligence uh, foolish people make bigger problems out of their problems because they lack wisdom. And so James says, if you lack wisdom, you need to go to the source of wisdom, which is God. Uh, he goes on, verse 9. Let the lowly brother or the poor brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuit. Now James spends much more time talking about the rich person than he does about the poor person, but the question is, what does the rich person and the poor person have to do with problems? What what do they have in common with problems? Question, do do poor people, and however you want to define it, rich and poor, do poor people have problems? Yeah. Uh, do rich people have problems? <laughs> Interesting, right? I mean, here's, here's something that, that rich people and poor people have in common. Poor people think that rich people shouldn't have problems. And rich people think rich people shouldn't have problems. <laughs> so what is James saying to us? The key to understanding this section, I think, is the word humility, right? The word down humility. Here's the deal, friends. Just because you have less doesn't mean you are less. Your identity is not in your possessions. And just because you have more doesn't mean you are more. You are not what you have. And so the problem, whether you're rich or poor, the problem is rooting your peace and your security and your safety in what you either have or what you don't have. And when you don't have it, or when you have it and then it's taken away, again, it doesn't matter. Poor people think they deserve better. Ironically, rich people do too. Both think that they deserve a better life. In other, word, in other words, God, God owes me something. Friends, that is a very dangerous attitude to live in. The bad side of the good news is that God owes you nothing. If you're breathing right now, you have more than you deserve. God owes you nothing. And yet, this is the good news of the good news. God has given us everything in Jesus. And so whether you're rich or whether you're poor or however you define that for yourself, in verse 12, James goes on, blessed is the man, happy is the man who remains steadfast under trial, whether you're rich or poor. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Life is hard. God is good. Friends, if you have nothing but Jesus, you have everything. And if you have everything but Jesus, you have nothing. So it doesn't matter. Poor people problems, rich people problems. Jesus is the answer to your problems. He goes on, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now at a surface reading, it seems like James is shifting gears here. He's been talking about trials and now he's talking about temptations. How are they, what do they have in common or what do they have to do with what James is teaching us here? Trials, if you let God do his work, will produce life and character. Temptation, if you're driven by desire, will produce sin and death. What do these two uh, do, have to do with problems? Now, friends, this, is, this area about temptation and, and trials is difficult to understand, uh, but here, here's the bottom line. God is not the source of evil. God is not the source of evil. Nothing comes to you uh, that is bad that comes from God. Hold on, stay with me. However, nothing bad that comes to you has not first come through the hands of God. Okay? God doesn't sin bad, but he allows bad to happen, as is James is telling us, to produce a character in you that would not otherwise happen without God, allowing God to work through the problems of your life. Satan can do nothing to you that God doesn't allow, but God is good. Do you, under, do you, under, do you believe in the goodness of God? He wants nothing but good for you. And so the hard part for us to understand is the good that can come out of the bad, that how God can work for the good of those who love him when everything around us looks bad. Friends, this is where your test, your faith is being tested and your character is being developed, to trust in the goodness of God when everything around you seems bad. So the word I want you to write down is the word desire. The word desire, because this is, friends, the key to overcoming both trial and temptation is desire. What what do you want? What do you want? You are what you want. Do you want an easy life with no problems? Well, good luck with that. (laughs) Or do you want God to work through your problems to produce in you a strength of character that thrives in the midst of your problems? Verse 16, do not be deceived, my my beloved brothers. Every good gift, every good gift, say that with me, every good gift, nothing bad comes from God. Every good gift comes from God. Every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. The last word I want you to write down is goodness. Goodness. The thing most questioned in the midst of suffering is the goodness of God. Here's what you need to understand about the Bible the Bible will never teach you how to avoid problems. Following Jesus will never give you a strategy to escape and to step around problems. But it will teach you, it will develop you, it will help you to reorient your heart toward the joy and the wisdom and the humility and the desire, the good desire and the goodness to live out the abundance God has for you, not in spite of, but because of the problems in your life. How do you do that? Several years ago, Ernest Hemingway said this, the world breaks everyone, and afterward, many are strong, at the broken places. The world breaks everyone. But friends, not everyone is strong at the broken places. Now, this is not scripture. But friends, the, the principle is biblical. James is telling us this morning that strength and character and hope and life and joy come from the broken places in your world when you allow God to do his work in your problems. Now, everyone, everyone walks through the doors of Grace Fellowship this morning, with something broken. I, I don't know what's broken in you, what's broken with you, what broken thing you have, but all of us have problems. All of us have something broken in our lives, whether it's financial or health or relational or spiritual, whatever brokenness you have in you. James is giving us a strategy to progress through that brokenness and to allow God to produce in you the person he has always wanted you to be. So what do you need? Here's the first thing I suggest. Some of us need a new perspective. A new perspective. Now, are you supposed to be happy about your problems? Absolutely not. Are you supposed to be happy because you have problems? Of course not. Jesus, he wept at the death of a friend. Jesus cried. I don't think James is is advocating a denial of reality. I mean, when life hurts, you feel it. And when life hurts, you need to express it. You can't heal from hurt unless you experience and express that hurt. He's just suggesting maybe you need a better way to look at it. Maybe you just need a new perspective on it. Because here's, friends, here's the biblical perspective on suffering it was never to be a part of the deal. God never intended for you to suffer. He never intended for you to experience bad in this life. He gave you the Garden of Eden, which was perfect and pain free. He didn't mess that up, we did. But even in our rebellion, God stayed true to His character, His goodness. And so He put into motion not only the redemption of our sin, but the repurposing of our problems. God is so good that he used our own mess ups, our own sin, and the suffering, wherever it came from, as a pathway to our personal and spiritual growth. Friends, he is not punishing you. He wants to use whatever you're going through to build you. So here, here's the, first of all, here's the thing about trials. And difficulties and problems and all the things that you go through, before before they build your character, they expose your character. Friends, suffering doesn't make you frail. Suffering reminds you that you are frail. (laughs) Suffering doesn't make you weak. It just tells you that you are weak. Suffering doesn't make you dependent. It just exposes the fact that you are dependent, that you can't do this on your own. Suffering exposes the weakness in your strength and the flaws in your thinking and the limitations of your self effort. Once you have the humility to face your humanity, suffering has the potential of improving all of those character defects in your life. Hopefully, you've already experienced this to some level in your life. You think back to where you were 5, 10, 20 years ago. Hopefully, you've grown smarter. Hopefully, you make better decisions today. Hopefully, you've experienced a more fuller and productive life today because of all of the failings and the fallings and the mishaps and the sins and the, the stumblings that you've had in your life. You handle your finances better because you know what it's like to go through financial disaster. Hopefully, you have better relationships today because you've gone through relational meltdowns. In the times you've allowed God to do his work, you've seen how the brokenness of your life has shaped you in more substantial and meaningful ways where you've become a person of character, a person who's richer and fuller and more purposeful in life. Because friends, you've seen it. You have people in your life, you've experienced it. People who do not suffer well. People who make bigger problems out of the problems that they have because they resist the work of God in their troubles, and they end up angry and depressed, and they're cynical about everything, and they're critical of everyone, and they're self-absorbed, and they're narcissistic, and they're addicted to whatever will temporarily relieve their discomfort. They have nothing to offer and nothing worth listening to. They are spiritual lightweights and emotionally shallow and relationally unappealing. Because, why? I mean, they will, they will not articulate it this way, but, but what's driving their discontent? Friends, is not their problem. It's their belief that God owes them better than what they have. And as long as you think that God owes you better, you will never get better. The sad reality is that God wants better for you. But their focus is relieving their pain rather than learning the lesson that God is trying to teach them in their problems. You know this. Problems can either make you better or bitter. But, friends, it's not the condition of the problem. It's the disposition of your heart. And so, maybe this morning you just need a new perspective on problems. Secondly, maybe you need a new discipline. A new discipline. James tells us if we lack the wisdom to to journey through this, you need to go to the source of wisdom. If any of you, he says, if any of you lack wisdom, well, he's just being kind (laughs) because all of us. All of us, like we were born, we were brought into this world without a lick of wisdom, and some of us haven't acquired that much going forward. The letter of James has been called the New Testament book of wisdom because he applies what we know. And the Old Testament Proverbs teaches us about wisdom in a lot of places by contrasting it with foolishness. The wise person against the foolish person. What, so, what, so what is foolishness? According to Solomon, foolishness is the unwillingness to learn from past experience. You can't teach me anything. I already know it all. (laughs) Foolishness is the resistance of correction. Don't tell me what to do. I'll do what I want. Foolishness is the desire for easy answers and quick fixes without any responsibility or accountability in life. And so the first step in wisdom, friends, is just acknowledging that you're not that smart and you're not that strong and you're not that able to make this work on your own. The first step in wisdom is to realize that without God, you don't have a chance. Here's where our foolishness is exposed. As long as, as, long as life is, is going according to plan, friends, we are tempted to take the credit You know, we're all good, I'm good, life is good. And then when when life falls apart, God takes the blame. What are you doing? Why are you doing this? Friends, foolishness is thinking that I can avoid suffering. It's thinking that my problems are God's fault. It's thinking that I can do this on my own. Uh, Tim Keller, in one of his books, talks about the pain of suffering and the shock of suffering. Now, we've all experienced the pain of suffering. It is unavoidable. But have you ever been shocked by it? We have all been shocked by it. Shocked by suffering is the, I can't believe this is happening to me. Shocked by suffering is the, why why God? Why me? Why this? Why now? think think about this for a minute. I mean there's a certain level of understanding. We get this. We you know when we're going through this we we just if if you just kind of give us a clue on what's going on, right? I mean if you just kind of I don't want you to take it away, just give me a context for understanding. I think that would help me and God doesn't always do that. There's a there's an element of the why question where we just we just want to understand. We all we got we get that. But if you're not careful friends, if you get stuck on the why question you can fall into an exercise of doubt and defiance because asking God why is kind of insinuating that you should, this shouldn't be happening to you, that you should be exempt from this kind of stuff. I mean, this happens to other people, but God, this is me. I mean, wh- why are you letting this happen to me, right? I mean, why, are you, why do you think you're so special? Like I deserve better. And so I'm shocked I'm shocked that you would let this happen to me. I'm shocked that you're letting it happen to me. And so people who are shocked by suffering have a difficult time learning from that suffering. They're overthrown by the suffering. And so they can't accept the reality of their suffering. Uh, they can't a- accept the reality of a broken world where, you know what, I don't know where this problem came from, but I've got it. And so James says, you, just, you, don't, need to be, you don't need to escape from it. You just need the wisdom to seek God in it. Suffering traumatizes us. Suffering paralyzes us. We get overwhelmed by suffering, and God understands that. Suffering exposes our inability to control life, and it pushes us, if we are wise, it pushes us toward a God who knows what's happening and is working all things together for your good. Only God can give you what you need, not just to endure the suffering and benefit from the suffering, but to avoid the shock of suffering. James says you've got to ask. But then he says you can't, you can't doubt. Because if you doubt, if, you, if you're not trusting in the goodness of God, then you're a, you're a double-minded man. You're double-minded. The word double-minded uh, literally means to be between two minds, or it means to live in two minds. It's, anybody here crazy? Anybody, anybody nuts? I mean, a person who's nuts lives in two minds, okay? Uh, and so you're, you're not quite sure what to think. And so you're, you're living between two thoughts. And you're being driven by two different ideas. Uh, suffering throws all the rationality uh, out the window. And it, and it drives, it puts us into two minds if we're not careful. Here's, there's a story in the Gospels where a man comes to Jesus He has a sick son and he asked Jesus to heal his son. And Jesus says to him, "Uh, I can do this. I can heal your son if you believe. Now, Jesus often said that. He said, all things are possible if you believe. And the man responded to Jesus this way. I do believe, help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. Now, sounds contradictory, doesn't it? I mean, you either believe or you don't believe, right? Well, no, (laughs) because you've been there. You've been there. I know who God is. I know God is in control. I know that God is good. I know that God will never leave me. I know that God loves me and wants the best for me. But sometimes I I just don't get it. Sometimes I don't see what you're doing in this. Sometimes I don't see the good in this. I don't see what good could come from this. Sometimes I, I believe you, Jesus. I just struggle. Right? Anybody there? <laughs> I, I do, I, I know it in my mind, but sometimes I don't feel it in my heart. And when I don't feel it in my heart, I question what's, what's in my mind, and it's just crazy hard. I feel, I feel like I'm nuts sometimes. Get this the, the man who confesses his struggle, I believe. Help my unbelief. Here's the kicker to that story. Jesus heals his son anyway. He, he went ahead and healed him. This is so awesome. You know what that says to me? That says to me that Jesus doesn't wait for us to get our acting gear. <laughs> Jesus doesn't wait for me to figure everything out. Jesus doesn't wait for me for my faith to be perfect, because he knows my faith will never be perfect. That regardless of how deep and how broad and how high and how long I understand, there will be moments that I struggle. There will be moments where I don't see and I don't understand and I'm not quite sure. Which leads us to the third thing, friends. You might need a a different perspective. You might need a a different strategy. You You might need a different discipline. But here's the bottom line, friends. You might just need a a different love. You might need a different desire. James says every good and perfect gift comes from God. Everything good comes from God. In the midst of your problems, God desires good for you. Which brings us back to verse 14 when he was talking about temptation. He said that we're lured and enticed by our own desire. So he's talking, desire pushes us. Desire pushes us in a certain direction, Uh, and so um, when it comes to problems, uh, we need to make sure that we're pushed in the right direction, and so we might need a different strategy, and for a different strategy, you just need a different desire. One of the things that suffering does for us is that it exposes what we love. It exposes our idols. The Bible talks about idols, anything that you put ahead of God in your life. If anything that you look to, anything that you desire that only God can provide to suffer, is to lose. You lose a lot of things, your money, your health, your relationships, you lose your peace of mind, you lose your reputation, you lose your, your joy. And suffering is loss, and there's nothing like loss that exposes what we ultimately love in life. And so, you know, try this out on a child. Uh, take something away from them. and see, you know, Sometimes they don't care. You can take things away from them, they don't do anything. Sometimes you take something away from them and they throw a fit, right? Why? Because, friends, when the, when the foundation of your life is built on anything other than God, when your money's gone, you fall apart. When your power is gone, you fall apart. When your reputation is gone, your relationship to your health, and you fall apart, these are the things that you're placing in front of God. When the anchor in your life, holding your life together, is anything but God, friends, one day that anchor will break. That is life. That is life. Anchors break away. So, you need an anchor that you can never lose. You need a love that can never be lost. You need a love that can never be taken away from you. And, friends, everything in your life can be taken away from you except Jesus. Except Jesus. So, who do you love? What do you want most in life? I want to put a picture on the screen. This is a a stained glass window from uh, what used to be a Notre Dame cathedral in Paris. And a couple of thousand years ago, uh, Augustine, the great philosopher, Christian philosopher, uh, likened life to having your face pressed up against a stained glass window. Imagine your face pressed up against a stained glass window. And all you can see is the broken pieces of glass in that window. All you can see is the various shades of color coming through that window. You cannot see what God sees from a different perspective. And so you look at all of the random pieces of hurt and struggle and problems in your life, and you don't know why they're there. You don't know what, what's happening. But God God sees this miraculous, what, what seems to be random, random pieces of glass put together into what is an amazing masterpiece work of art. In Ephesians chapter 2, it says that you are God's masterpiece. And he takes all the pieces of your life and works together for good, for beauty, what you cannot see from the various pieces of your life. Consider it joy. Consider it joy that God loves you enough to put your life together in a way that you would never be possible without Him. Life is hard. What? God is good. Say that with me. God is good. Would you pray with me? Father, we believe. Help us when we struggle. For some of us this morning, this is a sermon that we're gonna have to file away because right now it seems like things are going according to plan. But we know that that plan often shifts. Things are taken from us. And when our life is being torn apart, Father, help us not to fall apart, because our anchor is in you. But for those of us in this room where we're losing our anchor, remind us of the only anchor that we cannot lose and help us to put our faith in you and to consider it joy that you love us enough to bring out good in what seems to be bad. We trust you, Father. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.